0: The parents, meaning, like, my parents were taking care of their own care, mm-hmm. were like, well, why do we have to pay for this, number right. one? Yeah, I'm going try to bargain with you. We're not going to bargain this down. This is not India. it's not Pakistan. not, right. oh,
1: but, you know, I need to deal. I was like, right. there's no deal. There's no deal. <laughs> You're in America. And then,
0: they're, yeah, exactly. And they were like, people who are quite well off with being in the deal, too. Right. They're like, right. oh, what if, you know, we get one week or we get another week free. I was like, no, it's not going to happen.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down.
1: When we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Michigan resident Shaysa Cosme knows all too well the isolation and guilt felt by many of America's 44 million plus family caregivers. But as a Pakistani Muslim, she's had the added challenge of finding culturally competent help for her elderly family members. In 2014, determined to prevent others like her from feeling the same despair and isolation, Shaysa founded Detroit-based Upnakar, the first senior care company dedicated to serving the unique needs of elderly South Asian immigrants and other elderly ethnic minorities. Shasta Cosme joins us from West Bloomfield, Michigan, to share her story. Shasta, welcome to the AgeWise podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So your parents came to the U.S. in the late 60s, early 70s, and you described them in a video I saw as the American dream story. I wonder if you could share for listeners a little bit about your background and uh, growing up in West Bloomfield.
0: So my father immigrated first before bringing my mom over, but he was in Canada prior to us Mm -hmm. immigrating to the United States. And a friend of his had given him advice that come to America, what are you doing in Canada? <laughs> uh, you have far better opportunities here. This was in 1980. And what he decided to do was just put his house up for rent in Canada, come here for six months and take a leave from his job. which at the time, he was director of physical therapy at Hotel Jew Hospital in Cornwall, Ontario. He came here in 1981. And then he just never went back. We moved first to the Downriver area in Michigan, which was at the time a huge hub for a lot of immigrants, actually, because they were working at the Ford assembly plant, and they had a lot of opportunities there. My father, though, having a physical therapy background, came here, and what he found was that a lot of physical therapy was being done in hospitals. Mm -hmm. What he decided to do was start his own outpatient clinics. And he was actually one of the first people to start that, have multiple outpatient clinics to where people can have physical therapy done outside of hospitals. Uh And he started that in about 1981, 1982. And as time progressed, of course, you know, he ended up settling here and he just really never went back to Canada. And he used to go and visit his family members, of course, in Pakistan, but, you know, he ended up building a life here, a business and... He always tells me that he came to this country with $200 in his pocket, and he really did. He was successful. But my husband says the same thing, that he came to this country with $200 (laughs) in his pocket, and that was in 1996. So I swear both of them are like off with their inflation and everything. I'm always like, no, there's something off with this story. But they both claimed that they had that much. But with hard work and dedication, my father was able to literally build a huge rehab empire and legacy here in the state of Michigan and he did expand to mm-hmm. um, Florida and Chicago but unfortunately in 2008 he ended up being diagnosed with this uh, neurological condition which he ended up having to you know see back to a lot of his uh, ambitions.
1: Mm-hmm. So I know that your mother-in-law came to live with you 10 years ago, was it, from Pakistan? And so in addition to taking care of or managing, I guess, the caregiving needs of your dad, you also deal with your mother-in-law. What was going on in your life when your mother-in-law, first of all, came to live with you 10 years ago from Pakistan?
0: So in 2007, his family, my husband is not the oldest. He's actually second to last of five brother and sisters. So -hmm. being here in the States, he felt like maybe she would have better options with Mm -hmm. her medical care and medical needs. She is diabetic. She does have some coronary artery issues, some um, other spinal issues. So he thought maybe she would have better medical opportunities here in the States. She came in 2007. At the time, my eldest was three. My second son was an infant, and I was now pregnant with my third kid. Oh, wow. That's when she came in, yep. And when she first came in, because at the time, I was still a stay-at-home mom. My uh-huh. kids were young, even though I have a medical background. I went to medical school, I wasn't practicing, and I decided to put that you know, on the back burner. So I was at home, and I was able to initially take care of her needs. However, because she came from such a different type of environment, where she was living in Pakistan, she was not a joint family. Her eldest daughter-in-law was working as a teacher at the time, and her second daughter-in-law did not work. Family situations there are far different than they are over here. And so. In what way? She was more, well, in the sense that she literally was a stay-at-home mom. Here, stay-at-home doesn't mean you're staying at home. Right. I mean, here you are a manager of <laughs> right. um, a household, which is doing the groceries, going to the bank, doing everything, going to the kids' functions and things like that. So you're really not stay-at-home. You're, you know, CEO of your home. And over there, literally, if you're stay-at-home, you're stay-at-home. You're not going anywhere. You don't have the opportunities because, A, of, you know, not having the car. That daughter-in-law didn't know how to drive at the time. The household was, you know, one car, and my brother-in-law would use it. So she was literally stay-at-home. And Mm -hmm. our children were small at the time as well. So when she came to me, it was just a very different type of dynamic that unfortunately she was going to have to get used to because I wasn't going to be home all the time. Then she did go back to Pakistan after I had my youngest. She came back to us again a few months later, but she ended up having an accident where my youngest was crawling and I think she was trying to run to the bathroom and she fractured her shoulder. Because of that, now we had small kids, my husband was like, why don't you contact local senior care companies so that they can help you in the home because it's just going to be too much for you to manage. Mm-hmm. And I did. I contact local senior care companies. And unfortunately, even though they did try their best, they were not able to meet the cultural demands of my mother in law And the biggest issue was language. For my father, that was not the issue. Mm -hmm. Language was not going to be an issue because he spoke English fluently, as does my mom. Mm -hmm. But the issue for my mother-in-law, she could not speak English. The other issue, of course, was the food. The dietary issues as well, she could not tolerate just soup and sandwiches. I mean, she needs her full curries, her full lentils, and rice. That's for lunch and dinner for breakfast it was always cereal so they could manage that but mm-hmm. the communication was horrible i mean they could not communicate with one another and once my son was born my youngest i did decide to go back to work instead of doing you know a residency or what have you i ended up doing research clinical research neuroscientist so i was working at the time as well at st joseph's in southfield michigan it's part of the Ascension health system. Mm -hmm. So I was working there as a clinical research coordinator and my hours were not too much. I mean, I was still doing like about five hours, three or four days a week, but for her to be left alone with a caregiver, it was really difficult for her. And every time I'd walk in the door, I literally would have to redo the whole day. Oh, wow. Yep, I literally would have to redo the whole day because they could not make the food. And then there was just too many issues with communication. There was frustration on both ends, I'm sure. Sure. And so, you know, we kept trying different caregivers, And eventually what I did was I contacted one of my, well, actually one of my best friends is an immigration attorney here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And in her mosque, there was a lady looking for a job. And she asked me, do you want somebody to come into the home a couple of days a week to help you out? And it was the perfect opportunity. And that's when this lady started coming. And it took literally three years for us to find somebody from the mosque to take care of her. But once that Mm -hmm. happened, Mm -hmm. I noticed how things were so much easier for me, in the sense that I could walk in, her food was made, she was happy, she was dressed in her clothing because, you know, they were so so she was more comfortable in that. And it helped a lot with her social isolation because now this woman and her could speak her language they were watching our tv show they would have long discussions about the dramas that were happening their soap operas which are ridiculous but still it was like you know totally engaged completely happy and we felt like we had finally come to terms with everything so that was back in 2014 when finally everything had come together and i thought to myself i really can't be the only person in this situation There has to be other people, regardless of what happens. I know I'll always have two patients. One would have been my father. One would be my Uh mother-in-law. And I should Uh start something which could help elderly ethnic minorities
1: and the unique
0: challenges that they face. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2014.
1: I want to back up just a second. Were you actually preparing food for your Mother-in-law and, like, traditional food? Well, because that's time-consuming. And preparing food isn't something that all in-home aides necessarily do. I mean, a lot of them just help with activities of daily living. So you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be making food. But in your case and in the case of other ethnic minority families the food can be a real critical piece so were you making the food as well even when you had help from the senior care agencies yeah so you were making you yes. were preparing so, food and then going off to work and then your kids were being cared for by whom
0: at the time they were going to Montessori the youngest okay. so thankfully my mom lives 15 minutes away from us oh so that's
1: good okay. she <laughs> would
0: watch him you know, initially, when my father was diagnosed with multiple systemic atrophy, MSA, mm-hmm. the term before that was shy dagger, and mm-hmm. it was under another spectrum. So it's under the Parkinsonian umbrella. It's like Parkinson's. Uh, it's yeah. life right. syndrome. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's just really debilitating. And yeah. so initially, when he was diagnosed in 2008, and I knew based on all of my medical background and my research background, that he would not be confined he was not confined to the last three years of his life to that. And he was still mobile with a walker and things like that. So the kids would be at with my mom, with, of course, that assistant for my mom as well. So my dad didn't require that much care at the time. So as the kids were growing up, I was really lucky. In I that see. Sense that my dad had not gone downhill as much as he did starting in 2016 was where he started taking a drastic turn with mm-hmm. his disease. But, um, yeah, so it was making the food, and they didn't know how to iron her clothes because it's a different type of material, different sure, type of sure. thing. So it was a lot wow. of Yeah. know, And like I said, they were very open, some mm-hmm. of them, because, as you know, Mm -hmm. With these uh, caregiving agencies as well, there was a huge rotation of caregivers. There's a revolving door of caregivers every time there's somebody different. I mean, there was multiple times where my kids were getting late to school, which is a common thread for all caregivers were getting late to school because the caregiver has not arrived at the home or there's a different caregiver coming in. Now you have to reteach everything. So one of the (laughs) conscious decisions I made with the company was not to have that, to make sure there's one caregiver for one family. Because for me, that was the biggest irritation. I mean, there was multiple times where probably I was in the car crying because my kids were getting late to school and the caregiver still was not there, or there was going to be a no-show.
1: Yeah, um, that's such so a nightmare. There was a
0: lot of, the, the one of the conscious decisions I made with the company that I was not going to let a family go through that. You know, I'm really adamant with my caregivers as well when I signed them on board that, listen, this is not a joke. This is not something where I'm taking this. Lightly if you're calling off or you just don't tell us where you are. Because right. for me, that was the hardest, one of the hardest things through this whole journey, Is being d- a caregiver. And,
1: yeah. Is your death still alive?
0: No, unfortunately, he passed away in
1: June. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's recent. Yes. Well, I'm wondering how you went about finding culturally competent caregivers and how you managed to retain them. Because I know you have a high retention rate.
0: Yes. So one of the things that I did, one of the other aspects of the company, and of course, because I went through this using other local senior care companies, I knew what I wanted to do and what I would not want to do. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things was that aside from going to local mosques and temples, I was able to have women trained through different CNA schools here. One was through the American Red Cross. One is another great. CNA school here, Covenant Academy, mm-hmm. and what I would do is I'd tell these women, I'll pay for your CNA course, you'll have to stay within my company for three years, of course you'll get paid, but we'll pay for your class.
1: Uh-huh. And that's
0: how I was able to get my first group of ladies. Interesting. The other thing was that I didn't want untrained individuals in families' homes, because a lot of these other local senior care companies were sending just people And I would be like, honestly, you can't be a caregiver because they just had no clue what to do. And I was like, this can't be. You're taking care of an elderly person who needs help. So, again, I was lucky, again, in the sense of my medical background. My father was a physical therapist, so Mm -hmm. he was able to teach me how to get people in and out of bed. And we were able to teach those age who are coming to my mother-in-law those right. techniques but yeah. I wanted those women trained so that was the other social aspect of the company was that we wanted to train women who were victims of domestic violence or were coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds recent refugees to train mm-hmm. them in these different schools for free so that they would end up having a economic and financial platform which eventually you know we want them to go on and further their education and whatever they want to do, but at least this will give them some type of confidence to kind of move forward with their lives. Because a lot of times that is what's lacking is the confidence. They just are so unsure. Can they do it? Can they not? Right. And once they do, then they do quite well. And so I piloted the program so that we would have enough women who would be able to work when I started the company. Mm -hmm. And then because of that, we were just able to kind of have enough ladies to offset
1: the demand. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting business model because you are also helping the families by providing them with continuity of care, which is so hard. It's like a revolving door and you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you deliberately price your services below the national average so families can afford your services. What is the national average, and what uh, sort of rates do you charge?
0: So one of the things was was that these senior care companies were charging anywhere between twenty and twenty five an hour. Right, and I was honestly like, how are families going to afford that? That was the other issue that I had, where mm-hmm. was like. We can afford it. My husband's a physician making money where he can afford to keep his mom. But it was it was also hard for us financially because we had young children at the time. Uh-huh. And that in itself was a cost to home running. But we were still, thank God able to make and have the care for her mm-hmm. as for my father he had his social security he had his you know ira and pension and everything mm-hmm. so he was fine he could pay out of pocket but i thought of other families who do not have access to that and not everybody qualifies for medicaid mm-hmm. so one of the things was that i wanted to make sure that families would be able to afford the care so I made a conscious decision of having it at 15 an hour, which was not great for the company, mm-hmm. but I knew families, because some families just pay privately some caregivers at 15 an hour, but uh-huh. sometimes those caregivers take off, then they're not able to come. And so this way they would have an agency to back up any type of caregivers, you know, not showing up to work, et cetera. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. we charge $15 an hour. And again, the national rate is twenty to twenty-five an hour. And like I said, not every family can afford is can qualify for Medicaid. So we are a Medicaid provider agency as well. Okay. Um, and then many times there are some families who can't even afford the fifteen an hour. They don't qualify for Medicaid. So then we'll work with families to get the care that they need. Which is not, again, great. It's not like the most profitable company, but at least it's a company that can provide service to the
1: elderly despite whatever cultural background you're from. So. Mm-hmm. And your caregivers, do they get the free schooling in exchange for that? Or do you pay them as well out of that? Cause that's...
0: No, I, I pay for them as well. And we pay more than minimum wage. Uh huh. So my profit margin, if you can figure it out, it's not so great. It's not great. But no. I feel like that's why I'm able to retain my caregivers.
1: Sure, sure. And
0: it's all been through that. Is uh-huh. just the caregivers telling other caregivers, "Hey, you should work for this lady. She'll pay x amount." And yes, yeah, we don't have any benefits. That's true. But what we do offer, what I tell every family is, you know, quality care at affordable prices. And I don't think anyone needs to be reprimanded for taking care of their loved one. Everyone deserves some type of respite. Everyone sure. deserves to age in place with dignity and respect. And that has always been my motto. It's just what I felt like was the right thing to do.
1: Right. And again, you
0: know, I'm in a position where, sure, it's not going to make me millions, but at least if we can help somebody when you go to sleep at night, you have a peaceful sleep because you feel like, okay, you know, you're trying to do the best that you can with what you have.
1: Right. Michigan has the highest concentration of Muslims in America. Is that correct? I'm sorry, go ahead. Arab
0: Americans, but actually one of the things where I, yeah, what I found out in this whole journey was actually Indian Americans are the highest population of ethnic minorities in Michigan. That yeah. Come to Arab Americans. Yes. Uh, we have a huge Bengali community too. Bengali. Which has helped me a lot mm-hmm. in uh, recruiting caregivers as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the last five years has been just a journey of trying to figure this out. Because again, I don't have a business background, you know, I don't have an MBA, Mm -hmm. but what I did have was, you know, a father who had a business background (laughs) who told me, okay, at least if you do this type of a profit margin, you at least will break even or maybe
1: make a dollar. Right, right.
0: At least this way, you would be able to have family members have the care that they are in need of. And it is, I I call it a silver tsunami of what is happening here. You're having a huge, large patient population, and as the aging population grows, you're having less and less caregivers. There's so many different studies out there, but numbers don't do anything when nothing is really being done. One of the other things that I started to do, too, as I was approached by a group called Caring Across Generations oh, sure. in yeah. which we are trying to promote universal Family Care Act, which would, there would be some benefits to having caregiving under, I'm not sure what type of, it'd be under Medicare, or it'd be something that the state would provide to family caregivers.
1: Mm-hmm. I know
0: that Oregon and Washington State have passed so there is a stipend that family members will get, and they can use that stipend for care. I mm-hmm. do know Hawaii is doing is currently doing the same thing. I think in Maine, unfortunately, it was didn't testing.
1: pass. Right, right. The Kapuna yeah. Caregiver Act in Hawaii is the yes. one that really got put on the map. They seventy dollars a week. I think it is. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. That that's a really great thing. More of our conversation after the break. Hey everyone, it's Jenna. I want to tell you about a new offering from AgeWise Media. It's called Life Stories for the Ages, and it's all about preserving the personal history of someone you love by recording their life story on video. How did you feel about raising kids? What was the best part? Seeing them grow up. It was such a jo- such a wonderful thing to have. In your grasp, you know. Capturing a life story on video not only has therapeutic value for the person being interviewed, it also gives adult children a chance to discover things about their parents that they never knew. I was always looking for action and for getting into trouble because that was more fun. Check out this wonderful way to see, hear, and forever cherish the life story of someone you love before it's too late. To explore how it works, go to lifestoriesfortheages.com.
0: Live in the moment, live in the time, and don't look ahead too much, and don't look back.
1: When you first started the company, you got a lot of inquiries, but also comments like "My kids will do this," you know. Yeah. Uh, what yes. What was the reality, uh, though, about these kids? And I wonder if you could talk about other stigmas that you face.
0: So this was this was interesting too. The families in which the parents, meaning like my parents were taking care of their own care, mm-hmm. were like, well, why do we have to pay for this? Number right. one. <laughs> right. number Yeah, either try to bargain with you. We're not going to bargain this down. This is not India, this is not Pakistan. Right. Oh, but you know, I need to deal. I was like, <laughs> right. there's no deal. There's no deal. And then, <laughs> they're, yeah, exactly. And they were like, people who were quite well off with the deal, too. Right, they were like, right. oh, what if you know, we get one week or we get another week free? I was like, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I'm like, you know, look at other <laughs> local companies and see what they're doing as well. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the things. The other thing was was that like exactly my children will do it. Oh, my daughter in law will do it. And that stigma which was attached to all of this was interesting because my generation, the first generation, who was going to have to carry this mm-hmm. burden of caregiving for that generation, realized that no, there is a company out there that will help alleviate that stress. Mm-hmm. And So those children are on board. So a lot of them are now starting to make decisions Mm -hmm. for their parents as Mm -hmm. per the reason why the request for caregiving for our company has expanded exponentially since I started the company. When I first started, yes, I mean, it was just like, well, why can't my kids do it? Why can't we do it? You Uh know, I'll help my Uh husband or wife. But when they physically could not do it, that's when the calls would start to come. Oh, I need help. And again... Sometimes what was interesting is that the Muslim family would want a Hindu caregiver and a Hindu mm-hmm. caregiver would want the Muslim caregiver mm-hmm. so that the information or the gossip would not be oh. free flowing, and their families don't know one another. How interesting. So they wanted to keep things private. Yes.
1: Wow. So I would never have thought of private. that. It makes sense, yeah. though. So they yeah. wanted
0: to keep things private so that their community members wouldn't know what's going on in their house. So they wanted things like that. I got requests a lot for that a lot of requests of, you know, not to talk about it. The other thing that ended up happening with Mm. this immigrant population as well, was, especially when it came to Alzheimer's dementia, they did not want to talk about it. Mm
1: -hmm. They
0: recognized that there was an issue, but they did not want to define it. And they did not want to give it a name, Hmm. although their doctors had. But it was a culture stigma that, oh, no, they have this disease. A, don't tell the family member. B, they really don't have it. They're just aging. So, to place a name Mm -hmm. and to give it some type of reality Mm -hmm. was really difficult for that generation, not for us. For us, you know, we understand the terms and what have you, Mm -hmm. and it's not a big deal, but for them, it was. I so, think that cuts across been,
1: cultures, though, that yeah. difficulty with uh, naming it and admitting it and talking about it in and, and the generation above ours, for sure. But anyway. Yeah.
0: No, and that's what I'm saying. There's so many common threads, yeah. but culturally, caregiving goes across all different cultures and the challenges that we're all facing pertains to every single person. But with this particular group, yes, yeah, there's different stigmas, different things attached socially. It's like, oh, no, I'm not getting old. I'm fine. I can drive. You know, they're driving all over the place, and, you know, they've been lost. So there's been a lot of issues that the community itself is facing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I've always said this, too. They were able to build their mosque in a, you know, totally different country. They were able to build their temples. Mm -hmm. They brought their Patel brothers. They had their groceries put in place. One of the things that they did not anticipate was aging. Uh-huh. In the state. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of it had to do with, oh, well, we'll go back to our countries where we came from. we made so much money. We'll take it back there. Cause even in my mom's neighborhood, there is a um, husband and wife. She was an OBGYN and he was a psychiatrist and they were going to go back to Delhi and live there six months out of the year. And what happened is her husband ended up getting sick there and he took an ambulance to the hospital. They were stuck in an hour and a half in traffic. Wow. And literally when she came back, she was like, I can't do that to him ever again. Uh He was lucky. He was fine. You know, he had a hospital stay and what have you. But she was like, there were things that they were not anticipating that those things would happen. Even the medical care there was very difficult for them to understand and get used to. So then they ended up coming back to Michigan. So there was a lot of things that I think that they had this, you know, kind of vision of I'm going to go back and. Of course, with my armed American clients, a lot of their countries are war-torn, so they cannot go back to settle. So there was a lot of you know, instability and things like that that they did not kind of
1: uh, anticipate, you know, envision. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, with that being said, having to get with the fact that okay, they're going to age in place here. Again, culturally, we're still not there putting our parents in nursing home and assisted living. The, we do have patients who are in nursing homes. We have contacts with them where our aides will come in and give them food that's, you know, culturally so similar cool. to their
1: mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: at least they can have a caregiver who can speak their language sitting with them in the home or the assisted living. But still, it's not to that point where they're going into those assisted living. They want to be close to their family. They want to be close to their friends. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of them trying to figure their way out again. So it's a whole new phase of assimilating yeah. as we're getting older. Yeah.
1: Well, that's, this idea that living in America was a temporary thing, that we would be going yeah, back, I mean, that's, that's really I, fascinating. I,
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was one of the things. And we had a lot of patients who were like that. If right now I have a client who's going back to yeah, the Muslim family. Her husband already left, and they'll be back sometime in February. Mm-hmm. But he has Parkinson's. And oh. how long he's going to be able to do that? That's uh-huh. what his wife was saying. She's like, I don't know. Before, she would let him go alone. But since the last time when he went, he came back quite sick. She's like, well, I have to go with him now. You know, it's a challenge for her mm-hmm. as well. And many of them want to age in their home. Uh, mm-hmm. They do not want to leave their home. My father was very adamant that he was going to live and die in that house. We um, just decided to, you know, fulfill his wishes. But not every family can do that.
1: Yeah, it's a difficult, know, it's difficult setup. To sure. Is your mom yeah. still
0: living? Yeah, so my Great. mom is still living in that huge house of her. Oh, and
1: all on her own. The one that
0: my dad, yeah, he's yeah, all alone. And that's, so that's kind of over. scary. Now we're in a new phase. Uh-huh. Yep, <laughs> in a new phase of what we're going to do. Uh-huh. Um, I think she's ready to leave. But that will be a whole new challenge for her as well. But my brother and myself are like 10, 15 minutes away, but not everybody has that opportunity as well. I have another family that I just went to meet yesterday husband and wife only speak Urdu very limited English Uh yeah they only Mm -hmm. speak Urdu and Mm -hmm. the mom even though they raised the kids up here still has very limited grasp on English she can read and write it but Mm -hmm. she can't really communicate and she was in the hospital literally for about three months and it was a real issue for the family because the male nurses would come, and she didn't want the male nurses to come. And, you know, even when I went to meet them yesterday, he was very adamant, please don't sell male aides. And I was like, I'm not going to be sending a male aide to you. But, you know, I'll be sending them somebody who can speak their language while she recovers. But, again, you know, these are challenges that they're facing. And so when I was talking to them about services, the biggest thing for them, because they didn't want services. The father was in complete denial. He's eighty seven years old, was like, oh, I can take care of my (laughs) wife who's 81. I was like, I don't think so. Um, But the family was totally on board. Like the kids were like totally on board. They were just like, we're going to, you know, get the services for her. All she was interested was like, okay, somebody can cook and clean for me and cook my foods. And I was like, yes, they'll be able to make your dolls and your curries and things like that. So Mm -hmm. she was very happy about that. Mm
1: -hmm. So then that
0: just kind of took away the idea that maybe we are taking some of their independence away But in reality, she'll be getting somebody who will be helping her in the home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I said, it's a little difficult with this particular group because they kind of came in here, did everything they wanted to do. However, they wanted to do, raised our children here, yeah. and now you're telling them how to take care of themselves and what to do and what not to do, and you do end up having head sponging, But, like, uh
1: huh. Yeah. You gave an example in a video I saw of a client who had early onset Alzheimer's who wasn't engaging with yeah. the caregivers. I wonder if you could share that story. It was so poignant.
0: The thing we had two clients who have very early onset Alzheimer's dementia and he has written a lot of blogs. I'll mm-hmm. be on our website by the end of next week where he's documenting the care that he's received for his wife but she would not engage with the other caregivers that would come in but as soon as we had a caregiver who was from a similar background as her she would at least put on like Bollywood songs, Bollywood movies mm-hmm. and her eyes would light up and she would be engaged for quite a few, actually hours. It was very soothing for her, you know, her Bollywood songs. The other things were that they lose their ability to eat because if you even place food in front of them, sometimes they don't want to eat. They don't know what it's there for. Mm -hmm. However, when one of the aides who had taken her uh, tiffin, which was her lunch that she was taking to eat for herself, when she would open it up, Mm -hmm. it would cue her the smells. Mm-hmm. that she's, oh, I'm hungry, and she would point to her mouth and say, I want to eat. So wow. she would they would share the tiffin together, and the husband felt like they were very engaged. She would go on walks with her, and one of the things that we noticed, and again, I had no idea, was that a lot of these immigrants who know English, who could speak English, read and write, when they do end up getting Alzheimer's dementia, they end up losing their ability to speak English, they go back to their primary language.
1: Right. I've heard this as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of my clients, okay, was from some part of India. They speak Telugu. The children spoke Hindi and English. So now the mother
1: spoke only oh, Telugu to God. them and
0: they could not understand. What is the language was able to she was speaking? Telugu? Oh. Telugu.
1: Okay, Telugu. And yeah. I was
0: able to find a caregiver who could speak Telugu and they wow. were uh, <laughs> able to, yep, I was able to find them and place them in the home and for the last at least, you know, four or five months of her life, she was very engaged with them and she was able to connect with her caregiver and she was able to communicate with her all her feelings. And then their caregiver attachment, of course, being from that background, they yeah. know how to take care of the elderly, sure. so with their cultural values. So,
1: mm-hmm. I wondered, Chesa, have there been some surprises for you along the way? When sort of what didn't you anticipate?
0: I think one of the things that I did not anticipate was I knew that there was a demand for services. I knew because I was going through the same challenges myself. Mm-hmm. It took a while but I knew that it was eventually going to happen. The dynamics within the family, and I'm sure this is like cross-cultural, mm-hmm. but the family dynamics and of how important it is to have these strong family bonds so that when you do come to these type of decisions in your parents' caregiving, having those strong bonds really is easier to make certain decisions. Mm-hmm. It won't be so difficult when there is a lot of cultural issues that would be restraining for the kids Mm -hmm. and growing up here. Mm -hmm. And then those kind of manifesting into not knowing your parents and the parents not knowing the child. You know, that was one of the things. Because my parents and I, especially my father and I, had a very open and honest relation. And we talked about his end-of-life care because towards the end, he could no longer communicate. He could no longer talk. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the disease had taken over his speaking ability. Mm-hmm. So him and I were able to talk about you know, his end-of-life care. It's so surprising to me that so many families don't do that. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about what it is that their parents would want. Mm-hmm. And then you're in these highly emotional type of situations and high-emotion situations to make these huge decisions for them But you can't because you have no idea. So even, and again, that's probably Mm cross-cultural, but a lot of times I think it's really surprising families not knowing Mm -hmm. what it is that their loved one would want and explaining to other family members advanced directives and things like that. And that's another thing, too. A lot of people within our culture do not understand hospice, do not understand palliative care, do not understand advanced directives. They're like, oh, you know, you're giving up, you're not doing this. I mean, culturally, that's a whole other topic. But there is a lot of things that I feel like community members, people are just not anticipating as they're getting older Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to initiate
1: conversations. Mm -hmm. That was surprising. Huh. I mean, not talking about end-of-life care, I think you're right. It is cross-cultural. But what's interesting is that in a lot of immigrant families, you think the attachments are so strong that, well, why wouldn't they talk about that too? But you Right. Know, because they talk about everything else and there's just like such attachment. I mean, not to say that yeah. families don't have internal squabbles and stuff like that, but just... Tells you a lot about the stigma of talking about death, I guess.
0: And care, I mean, and you care. Know, again, yeah. It's just yeah, Like it's like, oh, I'll pass the baton on to this sibling, or I'll pass the baton on to this person, not having to engage so much as to what they're doing in the care-giving situation. Uh-huh. You know, that's always something too that we have to deal with. That was surprising that within a family of like six, seven, there was always the one sibling who would step up to the plate. Yeah, that's and common. Kind of to the decision. <laughs> right. And I think that's common. Patriarchal society, I think one of the other things. My mom was an equal partner with my dad,
1: uh-huh. whether
0: that be socially and financially. She was an equal partner with him. So I kind of grew up in a very different household, but some of these families are very patriarchal, and the father made most of the decisions. So now there was a situation where the wife is ill, and how are you going to get care it was really difficult for that person to make the decision of having care and admitting that they needed help Mm -hmm. that was another thing because i was like well you needed the help it's okay right what about when
1: the men need care who makes their decisions
0: (laughs) i think in that sense what was interesting was that the woman would think oh i can do it and Uh then they couldn't and then the children would step in Uh uh-huh it's like with the parents i had a girl who lives in new york and her parents are here And all she wanted was somebody to go in like two, three times a week, make food for the mom because she's like, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis. It's hard for her to go up and down the stairs. Can she come in and make this food for us? But the father was dead against it. He's like, well, I can just go to the, you know, Indian takeout and it's cheaper. Uh (laughs) So, but the daughter was really upset with him Mm -hmm. because she was like, how can you do that? Hmm. So still, again, that is going to be the challenge. But as that population is aging, and the children are taking over the care and managing that, then it's become much easier for me, mm-hmm. definitely, as an agency owner, to get
1: services for them. Uh-huh. Do you anticipate yeah. your kids caring for you? And how old no, are they no. now? And
0: I always, I, my husband, <laughs> I always tell my husband, I'm like, no, especially after going through this, because I feel like this is honest to God truth, but I feel like, I hope, I hope I was there for my kids. I feel like I was pulled in so many multiple directions. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they felt (laughs) neglected at times, which I'm sure they'll always have a story or what have you, but a lot of people tell me, no, your children saw you do what for your parents and for your mother-in-law they will, because that's what they have seen. I'm not sure. I hope it doesn't have, like, a reverse effect on them, (laughs) but to be honest with you, my husband and I are like, no, we'd rather again, just like with my parents, we want to be private in our homes and stuff. Out of all of this in the last five years, I've purchased long-term care insurance. (laughs) So I was like, I will get old. I anticipate that there will be things that will happen. And I'd rather protect myself just like you do when you purchase life insurance than you Uh protect your family this way. I protect myself so that, you know, if I do need services, I can get services. But it's a unique challenge because my parents did not have the responsibility of caring for their loved ones when they were old, Uh because they were here. Uh Their family members did. Yes, the U.S. dollars went there to help them, Mm -hmm. but physically they were not there. Mm -hmm. So they did not know, they actually don't know how it feels to have small children, deal with aging parents on both sides, Mm -hmm. and work, and where you can allocate that time to each of those different tasks. And that's the one thing our parents, this immigrant group, did not have knowledge of because they didn't do it. Right. You know, their loved ones were in India and Pakistan or, you know, in other Arab countries. And sure, they were able to send the dollars to help their families. You know, and of course, that was not a bad idea either. Sure. But they didn't bring them over here to do that. Whereas for my husband, he brought his mom over here. And again, with that decision, you know, she was very socially isolated for many years. It a husband, very difficult is, time for her.
1: Is she from yeah. Pakistan as well or India? Where's your husband's family from? No,
0: my the husband's family is from Pakistan. My in-laws, though, migrated from India in their 20s. Much later than when my dad did. My mom was born in Karachi, Gee, Pakistan. Uh-huh, my uh-huh. father was born in India. Oh, I see. In 1947, okay. after the partitioning, his family mm-hmm. left, and they all went to Pakistan. So my father says he was about four or five. They migrated from India to Pakistan, which is a whole different... That's another story, too. So, sure, I'll bet. Uh, wow. The story, you know, yeah, that's what I always say. That group left their homes in India, went to Pakistan, and then also came all the way across here as well. So they kind of were just roaming for- uh, Migrating. Without country for
1: many. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Wow. Well, I wondered if you could tell me what the significance of the name of the company is, Upna because I was fascinated by that. And for listeners, it's spelled A-P-N-A-G-H-A-R, but you pronounce it Upna Well What is the meaning behind that?
0: So Upna means mine. Uh Our, yours, in Hindi, Urdu. So it can mean ours, mine, yours. And kar, G-H-A-R, means home in Hindi and Urdu. So it was like my home, your home, our home. And all we're doing is offering the comforts of your home from your cultural background in your home so you can age in place with dignity and respect and bringing all those cultural values to you. So that was the idea. Because no matter what up to the would resonate with that particular group, the South Asian community. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was the choosing of the name. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think it's terrific what you're doing. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share before we close?
0: No, I think, you know, again, all of these cultures have a common thread, but caregiving is cross-cultural. All of us are facing the same issues and there's a lot of you know lack of resources especially from federal and local governments so i feel like you know one of the other parts of the company is to advocate for senior care and you know hopefully this universal caregiving act can pass in the 2020 election you know with caring across generations who is using it as a platform and Hopefully some of the candidates can get on board with this because I really think a lot of families are in need of care. No question Uh, about it. Yeah, there's a need of understanding the emotional and physical stress of the caregiver and their family. So hopefully 2020 offers better results.
1: We've been speaking with Shaysa Kosmi, founder and owner of Upna Car the first senior care company dedicated to serving the needs of elderly South Asian immigrants and their families. Upnakar is based in West Bloomfield, Michigan, but it also serves South Asian immigrant families in other parts of the country. The show notes for this episode will include links to Shasta's company, but if you want to check it out right now, you can go to the Upnakar website. That's A-P-N-A-G-H-A-R homecare.com. And you can also call the company directly at 248- three two five nine zero two eight. Shaysa Cosme, thank you so much for being on the show and for this wonderful work you do serving the needs of South Asian immigrants and their families. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaridis. See you next time, and remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.